All right, well, welcome to Bible study, everybody. We have a special edition of our Bible study tonight. We're coming to you from Belfast, Northern Ireland, in the United Kingdom. And uh, we are really glad to be at our friend's place, Tim, who is uh, our worker here in Northern Ireland. And so we're really happy to be with Tim. Uh, here to spend a few days with him, do some ministry here in Belfast, uh, pray with him, and uh, really just take some time, see what God has, minister to some people, and then head back home. But it's good to be here, and it's good to take some time to spend with him. So he's taken his life, and he's dedicated it to God, and he has moved himself, moved his life here, and we want to support him any way we can. So thanks, Tim. And thanks for having us here. Yeah. All right, so let's pray. Father, thanks for your love and thank you for uh, your word. I pray tonight that, uh, that your word would flow. And I pray for a, a prophetic word. I pray, God, for a word that is beyond that which I can even speak, but a word that can reach into the hearts, into the spirits, into the very being of who we are. Uh, the people here, and I pray, God, that we would respond to you. I just ask for a word of prophecy to come forth, an anointed word, a word that is creative, a word that can change things. And I ask you, God, that your power and your anointing would rest on this time, and that power and that anointing would have its way and do its work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Tonight we're going to be looking into Matthew chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew 9, I think there's a Bible available right here, and uh, I'm sure elsewhere, if you need one. Matthew chapter 9, and verse 13, if I could get a volunteer to read that. All right, thanks for reading that. Uh, if you want to look at the context of this, anybody want to look up into Matthew chapter 9? Uh, maybe look and see where there's a break and there might be a heading. What's the heading above this? The calling of Matthew. Now, who is Matthew? He's a tax collector. So, as a tax collector, he was universally hated and despised by everyone including his own family, uh, about the only, everyone's a strong word because the only people that tax collectors really hung out with were other tax collectors because that's the people that could stand them. And uh, they were universally, almost universally hated because they stole from everybody. That was how they made their money. Uh, they were given the task by the Romans. First of all, they worked for the Romans, which made them suspect at best because the Romans were occupying force of their land, and so they were working for essentially the enemy of their people. And the way that they were employed was simple. They were given the opportunity, we'll have you collect taxes from people, we will, in other words, back you up 
with the power and the armies of Rome and people will have to come to you you'll keep track of it and they will pay taxes you can charge them and this is how you make your money the Romans aren't paying them but what they'd said to them was if to make a living you can charge these people in other words overcharge them uh, pretty much as much as you want uh, to collect the taxes so in other words Caesar says you need to collect X number of denarii or or let's let's put it if I say Caesar said uh, you need to collect five dollars from every person and so Matthew as a tax collector he's got to feed his family he's got to uh, make a living somehow and so he says all right well I'm gonna collect seven per person and that way I'll make two and I'll be able to feed my family and do what I need to do some tax collectors collected more some less but they pretty much all collected about the same and made a bunch of money off their own people. So they were working for the wrong people. They were collecting more taxes than they needed to. And so in, in, in essence, they were stealing from their own people to make a living. And that's how they made their money. So no one liked them. Uh, and, and Jesus... Uh, when he came across Matthew, he called him, and the Bible says Matthew left what he had there. They, he set up to collect taxes. And so when Jesus called him, he just left what he had there on the table and went and followed Jesus. And it, it gives us a, a story in the Bible about Matthew, about Levi and Jesus, and how Levi invited Jesus to his house and he invited all his friends who were likely other tax collectors because those are the only people that really hung out with tax collectors were other tax collectors. And that's something kind of natural about that. If you think about it, Matthew meets Jesus, his whole life changes. In other words, he leaves what he's doing behind, the tax collecting. He leaves it behind. He follows after Jesus. In other words, something great just happened in his life. He met this man, Jesus, and his life changed. And so... He wants all of his friends, then, to meet Jesus, right? Is there something natural about that? In other words, this great thing has happened to me, so I'm going to share this with everybody I know, because I really think they could really benefit from it. And so he invites them all over to his house, and they said, okay, well, come meet Jesus, because we'd really like you to meet him. This has been life-changing for me. Maybe it'll be life-changing for you. And so they all did. So you've got Jesus. You've got a bunch of tax collectors. Matthew, who's a recent follower of Christ, and then all the disciples who are uncomfortable. Why are the disciples uncomfortable? They're uncomfortable because they're hanging out with a bunch of tax collectors. And they don't like tax collectors. And I want you to think about that for a second. They're uncomfortable with these people because they just don't like them. They don't like them. They don't like the way it looks. They don't like the, the even being there. And so then other people see them there in other words, the Pharisees see them there, and they begin to question them, like, why is Jesus, why is your rabbi eating with these tax collectors? Why is he there with them? And so they're uncomfortable to start with. They don't want to be there, and now they're being questioned by the religious leaders as to why their rabbi is eating with all these people, and they probably don't know why. They probably have no idea how that happened. When, in fact, it was just a really natural 
kind of progression of events. If you think about it, he called the tax collector. The guy's life changed. Then he invites all his friends over so they can meet Jesus and their life can change too. That's a natural evangelistic kind of uh, really free-flowing expression of what Jesus does in somebody's life. And so that's the situation they're in, which is really an awesome situation if you look at it from that perspective. But if you're uncomfortable, like the disciples were, they obviously weren't seeing it from that perspective. They were seeing it from how other people were going to see it. And I want to I want to say something about that and that that's a really dangerous place to live as a Christian. That if we put ourselves in a position where we're living in that spot where we're worried about how other people see something or we're worried about how they possibly might see it or we concern ourselves about that, we may be missing something really spiritual, really deep and really good that God is doing because we're worried about, we're looking at and we're concentrating on entirely the wrong thing. And that's what they were doing. They were allowing their own prejudice, their own old ideas, their own ways of seeing things, seeing the world, seeing people, the way that they had been taught to see these people. They were allowing that to interfere with what Jesus was actually doing and how someone, Levi, how Matthew was actually responding to what Jesus had done in his life. And that's a powerful thing. And so we we have a powerful evangelistic moment, a Holy Spirit moment going on here, uh, an opportunity for even more people, more of these tax collectors to come to know Jesus, to spend time in his presence, to know him, and for their lives to be changed. They're in the midst of that kind of an opportunity, and the disciples don't know why they're there, don't know why Jesus is there, and are uncomfortable with the whole thing, when really... This is what the gospel, and hear that, this is what the gospel, the ministry of Jesus, and what would ultimately be their ministry, this is what it's all about. This is essentially what they're called to do, and they're uncomfortable in the middle of it. And not only uncomfortable, they don't know why they're there, and possibly could be in the process of hindering it. All right, so basically working against what God was doing. And and before we judge him too harshly, how many times do we work against what God wants to do? And a lot of times we're working against what God wants to do because of whatever petty thing that's going on in our own hearts or minds. What people think, how people are going to take this, I'm uncomfortable because I've never done this before, because of fear, whatever it is, pride, whatever it is. And we end up working on the wrong side of things. We end up hindering things. We end up in, in, in just, just going about something in exactly the wrong way, just like they were doing right here. And so in a very natural situation, the, the, the Pharisees come they want to know what's going on. Why are you eating with all these sinners, these tax collectors? And so Jesus answers them by saying, go and learn. And 
from what I understand about that, that was a common expression. For a rabbi to say to people in, in, in their method of teaching was a question and answer method. In other words, disciples would ask the rabbi questions and the rabbi would then answer the question, sometimes with another question, sometimes with an activity, sometimes with an example, sometimes with a story, all the parables that you hear Jesus uh, telling. I mean, all these things, they, there were a lot of ways that the rabbi could teach people. And so a common expression when someone asked a question was to say, go and learn. So, so as a rabbi, when the Pharisees came to him, said, why are you doing this? Well, then he answers him. He says, well, go and learn. And it's also somewhat of a, an expression that you would use with children in some ways. It's not a, it's not a, um, a respectful answer. In other words, it's, it's you should know this, so why don't you go and learn this? Now, if you were a child or you were a novice, you wouldn't know this, and so go and learn means you know research this yourself and find out. Or he might just, if they were that young, he might just tell them the answer. But for somebody to come to him and ask this question that he believes should know the answer, then he would say, well, you need to go and learn. And so what does he tell him they need to go and learn? He says, you need to learn the meaning of this scripture. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. That's the, the scripture that's there. And and so let's uh, somebody look at Hosea 6.6. 6. Since he quotes that, there may be something that we can learn from the actual scripture he's quoting and something in that context that would tell us a little bit more about what he's saying. So in a sense, we're going to go and learn what he's telling them. So he says, "Learn. tell me the meaning. You need to go and learn the meaning of this scripture, Hosea 6.6. 6. All right, you want to read that? For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. All right, I desire, and stay there for a second, mercy, not sacrifice. All right, that's the part that Jesus quotes. And and that's a powerful statement because if you think about the the religious order of the day that the Pharisees represented, they were all about the sacrifice. In the sense, they were all about the law. In other words, they believed in tithing, which is an honorable thing to believe in. But they took it down to the grain of whatever it was that they had bought. I'm going to give 10%, but we're going to count out a 1,000 pieces. I will give you exactly 100. So they were very precise about it, and they were to the letter of the law. And the way that they saw their relationship with God, the way that they understood their relationship with God, the way they were taught as to what their relationship with God, their relationship to other people was, had to do with sacrifice had to do with the the system that they were a part of, the synagogue system. And so in their minds, in their hearts, that, that's how they saw things. They saw things in that sacrificial, that, that system that they were a part of. And so when Jesus quoted this, he said, I want you to go learn the meaning of this. He's, he's really speaking directly at them saying, you've, you've got the sacrifice part, 
But you miss this scripture that says that God prefers mercy, not sacrifice. And so you've got the whole mercy side of this that you've missed, and you've got the sacrifice part down. You've just chosen poorly. But that's what everybody did. That's the way that worship went in, in the, the hundreds of years that, that this whole system was being developed. Once that they came back from the captivity, they were very strict about this system of worship so they wouldn't mess up again. That they wouldn't go worship false gods. They wouldn't go and turn their backs on God again. They wouldn't go and make the same mistakes that they had made before they were carried off as captives. And so they wanted to make sure that, that wasn't going to happen again. And they just went just just straight up. This is how we're going to do it. We are going to follow this thing to the letter. We are going to do this thing to the letter. And that's exactly what they did. And they've been doing it for hundreds of years. And so Jesus said, you need to learn this. So if you read before that verse, what does it say there? Say, read, say, verses 4 and 5. All right, so in context of what he's saying there, he talks about, he says, your goodness is as the morning mist or the morning cloud. In other words, what what is their goodness? Yeah, it doesn't really mean anything. It's like you look at it and you, there's no benefit from it. There's nothing that you really experience very long and it's just gone. And basically he's telling them that their relationship is broken and he's saying that they are, and if you go even look at the verses beyond verse 6, that they're just really a treacherous people. In other words, they claim to have relationship, they claim to love him, and they claim to live in love, but the bottom line is, is that they don't. It appears, but then it disappears. And it's not what they claim it to be. And so if you look at what he says to the Pharisees in context, I mean, that's the Pharisees. They claimed a certain love. They claimed a certain relationship. They claimed to be the closest people to God in the world. I mean, that, that was their claim. They were. They were it. They were the example. They were the ones everyone should emulate. They were the ones that were doing it right, were doing it you know, the way it was supposed to be done. That's what they were proclaiming to them. And yet, you look at that, and that wasn't really the case. What was really happening is that they, their love was like a morning mist. And they were really dealing treacherously, not only with God, but with other people. And so he was calling them on that. And in the full context of the verse that he quoted, go and learn the meaning of this. I'm sure that's part of the meaning. Your love is here today, gone tomorrow. Not even that. Here now and gone in a minute. And, and, and treachery and, and unfaithfulness and broken relationship with God and with other people. All of that's contained in that. And that's what he's telling them. He's just saying, what is the meaning of the scripture? Well, the, the, the true meaning of the scripture is, and, and this, this is the way that I see it, God prefers mercy. And we have to see him that way. I, it, it's, at this point in our understanding of the gospel, 
We need to understand that God wants, prefers mercy. That's who he is. That whatever else we've been taught, whatever else other people have said, whatever else other people have preached, what they have brought to us, we need to lay that aside and learn what the scripture means, that God prefers mercy. That is his preference. In other words, if we are to default to anything, ever, in what our actions are, in the way that we see things, the way that we see God, and the way that we understand God. If you're going to default to anything, your default needs to always be mercy. That's what he's saying. That's the meaning of the scripture. And so, honestly, honestly, Christians don't do this. I mean, just honestly. For some reason, the church, and, and I know what the reason is, but the church has chosen the pathway, has chosen the road of control over people. And because the church has chosen the road of control over people, they will control them through fear. And it's hard to control people through fear if they understand that God loves them no matter what and that he's a God of mercy and they constantly default back to mercy. It's really hard to control people then. Because the bottom line to that is God loves me and his mercy, I'm going to default to that every time. You know, if it ever crosses your mind, wow, I wonder if God's disappointed in me. No, he's full of mercy toward me. I wonder if God is mad at me. No, he's he's full of mercy. He He loves me. And he's shown that love over and over and over again. And he prefers mercy. He That's the default. That is the default. And so how does the church control people? The church controls people through fear. It's like, you need to do this. Well, God's going to be mad at you. Every time I hear like a parent, you know, or, or a mom or dad, or whatever, or a grandparent, say to a kid, be good, God's watching. I cringe. That makes me literally cringe. Like he's some taskmaster that's just waiting for us to make a mistake. And and think about how that gets into a kid's brain and grows up with that, oh, God's watching, I'd better be good. Why? Why? Because he's mean? Why? Because he's looking for you to make a mistake? Because he's going he's gonna to somehow spank you? I mean, seriously, what are they really saying when they say that? It creates a fear. It creates a fear in kids. And that fear that's in that little kid continues on in that little kid until they're big kids and until they're adults. And then you have adults that think that way. When they think about God, they see God. It's like, well, he's just making, waiting for me to make a mistake. Or, or generations of people that won't even serve God, that won't even try to serve God because they can never measure up. Measure up to what? His mercy? Measure up to his grace? Measure up to his forgiveness and his love? That is not what they're thinking. You know, that was one commitment I made when I had kids was that I was going to constantly pour into them, God loves you. God loves you. God likes you. God really likes you. God has the best for you. He's looking out for you. That, that That's who they were going to see God as. If I had anything to say about it, if I had anything to do about it, that's who they were going to see who God is. And if they make a mistake, it's okay. If they mess up, it's okay. 
And if they don't do the right thing, it's okay. It's, it's fine. He's still, he's still full of mercy. He's still full of love. And he's still just loving you right now. I don't care. And, and, and I, I committed myself to that into their lives. And you know what? They're not growing up to just do whatever they want. They're growing up serving God in a way that makes sense to me. And it's not because they're afraid. It's not because they even feel like they have to that I know of. It's because they want to. And even when they mess up, at least so far, and we'll see how it all turns out. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but at least so far, when they're messing up, they understand, yeah, I need to get this right, but they're not afraid. They're not afraid. And they can always fall on the mercy and the grace and the love of their Father. So, I I want to I just wanted to to say that because I think that we've really gotten it wrong. And I mean we as a church have gotten it wrong. We've got to default. We need to learn the meaning of the scripture. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so people are always more important. All right? People are always more important. We're people, right? We're people. And so we're more important to God than other stuff that you think is important to him. We're more important. And so people in our world need to be more important than stuff too. That's part of the mercy. And and I know some of us, we have this high sense of justice sometimes. I fight that every now and then, that things need to be fair. Well, people are more important than that, than our sense of justice. People are more important than what's fair or not fair. And if you ever work with people that are takers, you got to learn that lesson quick or you're just not going to work with them anymore. Because if you're looking for fair, takers are never fair. Because they're just takers. That's why they're takers. They're not givers. And so you give somebody, you give a taker something, man, they're going to take it. Do you get anything back? Probably not. And you give them something else, they're takers. They're going to take it. You get anything back? Probably not. See, everything I'm just saying is not fair. And part of loving somebody and part of having mercy on them, and I mean this to a certain degree, is being willing to live in that inequity because people are more important. And it teaches us a little bit about God when we do that too. A little bit. Because we're takers. And what does he get from us? Not much. Nothing. I don't know. But he keeps giving. And so it gives us a little bit of that heart of God. It also gives us a little bit of the broken heart of God too. When we see takers. When we deal with takers and it breaks our heart. Well, it gives us a little bit of his heart too. Did somebody look up uh, Matthew twelve seven? Scripture says, "Go out kindness." 
really know what the Holy Spirit means. Do you understand? Have you understood then you would not judge those who are becoming obedient? All right, so he, he repeats this again later on in Matthew. And so I would guess, I would suggest, I'm not guessing really, I would suggest that this is an important teaching. This is an important teaching from the prophet Hosea that Jesus takes it two times and he uses it in his teachings when he's talking to other people. So changing a perception, changing a way of seeing things, changing a paradigm that these people have about what God wants and about who God is. And so instead of mercy in that version, he uses the word kindness. Kindness needs to win. Kindness needs to be the default. People need to win in our lives. They need to be more important than what? Than whatever. Right. Than what? I don't know. Whatever. People are the key to this. All right, so getting back to this, this passage, who does Jesus call? Those of you who've been around long enough, we believe there's a call. We believe that Jesus went and called his disciples, and so he calls us. And we, so we think part of what God's plan for our lives is answering that call. You know, we're not a big uh, say the magic prayer church. We're just not you know, big into that. If you want to say the magic prayer and you did say the magic prayer and you know the date you set it on and that's your spiritual birthday, that's great. And I don't, I don't fault that. I don't think anything good, bad, or indifferent about it. It's good. It's a marker. It's a spiritual marker. It's an important date for you. That's good. Hold on to it. I can remember first time I asked Jesus really into my life. Uh, I didn't really know the magic prayer. And so I just made up what I could do. And did my best. And I can remember after I, I prayed for Jesus to come into my life. Uh, I was by myself. And, and I went and I told somebody about it. And they said, well, did you say the prayer? I said, I don't know. What's the prayer? They said, well, what did you say? And I told them, I said, well, that's not really the prayer. Like, do you want to say the prayer just to make sure? I'm like, no, I don't think so. You sure? Because I can, I can lead you in the prayer, you know, just to make sure if you want. I'm like, I don't think so. I think I'm okay. You know, I, I think I'm okay. But I had people trying to lead me in the prayer for probably a year or two after that. Because other people heard I didn't say the prayer. I didn't say it. Officially, word got out. I didn't say it officially. And so I had a bunch of people trying to help me in it. But I'll tell you something that really did happen that night. What really did happen that night is that I answered a call. I consciously made a decision and answered a call that Jesus put onto my life. He had never heard this before, never heard anybody do this before. He filled me with the Holy Spirit. I began to speak in tongues, a language I'd never spoken before, never having heard that or even known I was supposed to do it. And my life changed that night. I, started, I had a, a hunger for the Bible. I'd just read it. Yeah, I was, I was like, and I hunger. That's a great word for it because I just started devouring it. I could not read it enough. I could not spend enough time in prayer. And I was trying to go to class. I was a full time student. I was an engineering student at the time, and I was going to classes, going to labs, you know, all the stuff I, I normally did. And I'd still read, and I'd just take the time because I just could not get enough. My life changed in a moment, even though I didn't say the official prayer, but I did answer a call.
And so Jesus is about calling people. He called the disciples. He called Matthew. This is what we're looking at here. Matthew, something happened that day that changed his life. Something dramatically took place in him and changed his life. So he calls Matthew. Who does he call? Well, he explains who he calls. What does it say in the verse? Verse 13 of 9. Who's he call? He starts off with the negative, then cut, brings it home, and then and then just just brings it home with the positive. Matthew nine thirteen. All right, what does he say? Okay, so who does he call? He calls people who know they're sinners. That's who he calls. He calls sinners. Tax collectors know they're tax collectors, don't they? I mean, seriously, they know. They know no one likes them. They know they're the only people that can stand each other. They know. It's not a secret. There was no secret life of tax collectors. They know that they're stealing from their own people. They know that they work for the Romans. They know no one can stand them. They know they're universally hated. They have no illusions about it. They are sinners, and they know they're sinners. And so Jesus is making a point here. He says, I came to call people who know they're sinners. I came to call these people. Like this, just like these people, just like Matthew. I mean, exactly like Matthew. And why is it important that Matthew knew he was a sinner? Why is that important that these people know they're sinners? Who are they? If you know you're a tax collector, you know that nobody likes you, you know that your life is whatever your life is, that you live cheating and stealing and working for the enemy, you already know all that, right? And you've got a guy that calls you and says, I can give you something else, right? Why is it important they know that they're tax collectors and sinners? Why is that important? If you've got somebody offering you something else, why does that make sense? Now, I know this seems obvious, but it's not. Why does it make sense? Well, they do know they need help. They want what? Let's say let's say half the guys there that night that was at that party, let's say half of them said, I like what you're saying, Jesus. I'm going to take that. What's going to happen to their life if they want to take that? What's their choice? They're going to leave what they're doing in order to take what's being offered. So in other words, they are in a position they can make a decision. And the only way you can be in that position is if you honestly know or have some idea about who you are and where you stand. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but that's how it makes sense to me. When I was called, I knew who I was that night that I was called. I I didn't have any illusions about it. I didn't see myself as righteous. 
I didn't see myself as spiritual. I didn't see myself as somehow uh, in, in with God in some way. I didn't think that I was in any kind. I was under no illusion that I was in his will, that I was in his purpose. I could care less. That if you would have talked to me the day before that happened and you said anything about God or whatever, I was like, yeah, whatever. I could care less. I had no illusions about it. It was, and, and this is something I've never understood. If you want to go out and live your life and sin or whatever you want to do, just go do it. I've never understood the the person who like lives in this weird in-between state of, well, I'm a Christian, but I have this secret life where I'm doing other things that I want to do, but shh, I don't want anybody to know. Like, you're either going to live that way or you're not. And and it's like, if you're not going to serve God, if you're not going to do anything for the kingdom, if you're not going to give any portion of your life to whatever God has for you, if you could care less about his will, you could care less about his direction, you could care less about anything that he's doing or saying into your life, why are you bothering with any of the rest of it? See, and that's the part I can't understand. And I've never understood that. I have no ministry to those people. None. Zero. And I never have. And I know there's people out there that are called to that and they're really good at ministering to people like that. I am terrible at that. Terrible. And I know I'm really bad at it. Because it's like, if I want to be a Christian, then I want to do what God tells me to do and I want to go about the work he's called me to. I want to follow his will for my life. Is there going to be perfect? No, it's never perfect. But that, that's at least the desire of my heart. That's really what I want to do. Even if I can't do it perfectly, I, really deep down inside, I really want that and I'm going to go after that with, with everything I got. If I wanted to be a sinner, I'd just go do that. If I wanted to be a rock star, I'd have went and pursued being a rock star. Okay? If I wanted to be a millionaire, I'd have went out and I would have gotten a certain kind of job or done whatever I was going to do or started a certain kind of business and I'd have been a freaking millionaire. Alright? But if I if I wanted to do something else, I'd just go do that. So, but why would I say I want to do something and then just live my life and do something completely different? That I don't understand. I, I, I seriously don't understand it. And, and you could apply this to anything you want. I, I've talked to people, it's like, well, I want to be, uh, when I was younger, I'd, I'd meet guys or I'd be working out and I'd be around guys like, yeah, I want to be, you know, in the NFL. You want to be in the NFL? All right. You're too weak, you're too slow, and you're not smart enough. All right. I can tell you right now. Right, but the bottom line was I'd watch these guys and they weren't even serious about it. You're working out, you're running, you're doing what you need to do. No, but you want to be in the NFL or I want to be in the NBA or I want to do this or I want to do that. It's like, well, you're saying you want to do something, but your life doesn't reflect what you're saying you want to do. How does it make any sense? And, and whatever other story there is, I want to be an engineer. Great. Yeah, I just don't like math. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Because math is a language of physics, and physics in general is really the language of engineering. So, I mean, if, if you really don't like math, I, I don't know how that works. But it's kind of cool. I mean, you're saying you want to be an engineer, so I guess you can say that until you fail out. I don't, I don't know. I, I really, seriously, all that's a mystery, okay? And that's why I'm really bad at working with these people. 
I'm really bad at it. So the call comes up. It's like I had no illusions. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm calling you in, in to be my disciple. I wasn't going to argue with him. There was nothing in me to say, well, I'm kind of serving you now, Jesus. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, can we negotiate out something here? I can negotiate this with you, right? Like I can hang on to A, B, and C, and you'll take D and E, maybe? I need some visitation rights on C? I mean, what, what are we going to do here? There was none of that. It was like, I know where I was. I, I really, I, there was a revelation. I got a revelation of God in my life one night. He calls me. I'm like, heck yeah, man. I really want that. And that was it. And there was no looking back from that. There was no, oh, I wonder if I made the, you know, whatever. That was it. And there was a moment in my life that, that changed my life. And that's just how I felt about it. And so everything after that changed. Everything progressed into changing. It didn't change in a moment. Some things did. Most things didn't. Most things were a progression of change in my life. But moving in the direction that God had for me. And so in my mind, I look at somebody. Jesus comes to call who? He comes to call people that know they're sinners. These guys knew who they were. There was no illusion about it. And so he's offering them a contrast to their life. And they're either going to take that or they're not. They can easily look at it. They can say, well, I can stay in this. I'm making lots of money. My family's happy. My mother-in-law loves me. I'm just going to keep doing this. Or they can look at it and they can say, you know what? I really like what he has to say. I think he's got something for me. I'm going to follow this guy. Forget it. I'm leaving this stuff behind. They know exactly what they're leaving behind. And they take hold of a life that they really find attractive and they really want. Do you see the the how that, that contrast creates a real decision, a real moment of decision? That's who Jesus calls. When he called the fishermen, I mean, the fishermen knew they were fishermen. They smelled like fishermen. <laughs> All right? And that's a terrible life, man. No offense to fishermen. But that's not really a great life. And the Bible says when, they call, when he called the fishermen, what they do? They dropped their nets and followed him. Hey, I'll make you fishers of men. Sounds a lot better than fishers of fish. Let's follow this guy. <laughs> Here's the contrast. I'm out of here. All right? A decision was made. They're looking for change. So think about Matthew. I mean, that's what happened with Matthew. Somebody look at Mark 2.15. Look at the people following after Jesus. Mark 2.15. Yeah. So, again, who does he call? Tax collectors and sinners. How many followed him? Many. <laughs> many. How many Pharisees were following him? None. Not really. Not openly. Well, even, even Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him secretly at night, right? Who's following him openly? That's a Pharisee. Not, nobody. I mean, who's following him openly? Tax collectors and sinners. That's who he had around him. That's who he called. Somebody look at uh, 1 Timothy one fifteen. 
Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm using the word sinners. I hardly ever use that word, but it's in context to the the scriptures tonight. Because it, it's kind of an interesting word that we have a meaning for in our minds, but I, I think it's a lot more general and applies to many more of us than <laughs> we originally thought, I guess. So, First uh, Timothy one fifteen. Okay, that's Paul talking. That's Paul talking. So he readily identified as a sinner. Not not only as a sinner, he readily identified as the worst. The worst. And this is a trustworthy saying, and it's worthy of full acceptance. In other words, you can trust it. Not only can you trust it, but everybody should believe this. And if they don't, they're stupid. They're dummies, all right? Because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which Paul says he was the best sinner. <laughs> all right? So, so really the word sinners, um, yeah, that's who Jesus calls. That's who Jesus calls. That's who he came into the world to save. And that is a main and plain doctrine. That's not some niche thing that Paul said on the side. That is a main and plain doctrine. That's also a main and plain teaching of Jesus. He repeated it at least twice. This is the truth. We need to get it. Because a lot of stuff is built on this. A lot of things are built on this through the Gospels and then through the writings of Paul. And if you don't get this first, you're not going to understand the other teachings of Jesus. You're going to misinterpret them and you're going to misinterpret the teachings of Paul, which people have been doing for centuries. Because they didn't get this first. This is the main and plain. So, who does Jesus not call? The righteous. the righteous. Jesus does not call those who think that they are righteous. Or, a better word, those who pretend that they are righteous. You can look at this a different way in that he's speaking to the Pharisees and they are the people that everybody believed were righteous. They were the consensus righteous people of their day. So he did not come to call the righteous. So if you have a consensus idea of what being the righteous is, those are the people that he did not come to call. Whoever they are in your head, I don't know who that would be. But if you have that, that kind of generalized consensus understanding of what the righteous look like, that's who he didn't come to call. He came to save sinners. He came to call sinners. Tax collector types. That's who he came for. Let's look up a few verses here. 
Psalm 14.3. I'm going to name off a few of them here. Psalm 14.3, Romans 3, 10-18, and, and Luke 16.15. Alright, Luke 16.15, Romans 3, 10-18, and then Psalm 14.3. Anybody have Psalm 14.3? All who turn aside live together in transgression. No one is No one. No one. Okay. How about Romans 3? As scriptures say, there is no one who walks the Lord at night. There is no one. There is no one who understands. We just read that. <laughs> the scripture says that. In in Psalm fourteen three. Okay. Let's keep going. Uh, there is no one who always does what is right, not even one. Uh, there is no one who understands. There is no one who looks to God for help. All have turned away. Together everyone has become useless. There is no one who does anything good. There is not even one. Their throats are like open graves. They use their tongues to tell their words are like snakes' venoms. Their mouths are full of curses and pain. They are always ready to kill people. Everywhere they go, they cause ruin and misery. They don't know how to live in peace. They have no fear of God. All right. So, so as you read those two sections, what we get out of that, just the simplest understanding of that is that no one's righteous. No one. So the only people that we can look at that we would say are righteous in our whatever that word is in your head whatever that conjures up in your brain it's probably just wrong cuz no one's righteous no one and so whatever has been built in there whatever has been thrown into that whatever is in that little mix that's in our mind it's just not it's not it's a an illusion and and the only way that that we we can look at someone, or the only way that we can even understand that word, is if someone pretends to be righteous, maybe. Someone who justifies themselves, maybe. I don't know. But the bottom line is, is that no one, not one of us, not any human being, can just look and say, "Yes, I'm 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 the righteous one." At least not in their own understanding of it or their own power of it. They can't do it. None of us can. Luke sixteen fifteen says, He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. For people vary highly in contemptible appearance. Right. So we're just we're just wrong in how we're seeing it. We're just wrong. And and we have to recognize that. And and we have to take the mantle that Paul took on himself. As sinners. Because that's who God calls. That's who Jesus came to save. 
we put ourselves in a position by understanding that and by embracing that, put ourselves in a position for salvation, put ourselves in a position for discipleship, put ourselves in a position to answer the call. That's how we do it. It is a, an honest recognition of who we are. Honest recognition of who we are. Martin Luther, and if, if you look this up online, you can Google this phrase if you want and, and really uh, see what people have to say about it. You will see probably as many positive comments as negative comments about this concept. Uh, but Martin Luther... Uh, and it's the idea of sin boldly. And so as Martin Luther, he the, the full quote is sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. For he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. That's the full quote. But but people take that idea of sin boldly, and if you just take that idea, uh, some people take that as an invitation to sin. In other words, say, well, I'm going to you know, sin boldly. Oh, good. I'm going to run out and sin. Well, do whatever you're going to do. Right? That's not really an invitation to run out and sin. Uh, as, as Bonhoeffer would later write about Martin Luther and, and using that quote from him, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace and cheap grace being a, a part of the church and a part of how the church grows itself at this point in history. And and so uh, with with that kind of an understanding, I guess you, you could twist what Martin Luther said in order to try to understand it that way if you believe that, you know, we're, we're just going to run out free of, you know, to do whatever we want to do. And, and that's not really what God calls us to. That's not really who God has called us to be. If you want to run out and just do whatever you want to do, again, here's where I'm no good with this. Go do it. If that's your heart, go do it. Be good at it. All right? If that's what you really want to do. If you want to serve God, then answer the call and go about the Father's business. Because whatever restrains you from just going out and, and and just going about whatever you want to do is probably fear and is probably a terrible view of God that you are somehow sharing with other people, unfortunately. And so in some ways, people are better off, in my opinion, taking their inheritance and running off and do whatever they're going to do. Just like the prodigal son did. Because to me being restrained in the family and having a heart to go do something else isn't doing anybody any favors. That's just my thought on it. And I know I'm a terrible person for saying that, but I, I really think that. Because I'm really about the business of what God's called me to do. I'm really about it. I'm really about the the life that God's called me to. And, and and what's in my heart, and when I hear that phrase, sin boldly, I don't hear, oh, well, that means I can just go do whatever I want to do. Because that's not anything to do with the call that God's put on my heart and on my life. But I'm also not going to pretend to be somebody I'm not. And so when I read sin boldly, and but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, 
for he's victorious over sin, death, and the world. When I read that, when I hear that, it reminds me that Jesus came to save sinners of which I am chief. That's what that reminds me of. So am I a sinner? Yeah. Yeah, I am. And you know what? I'm going to rejoice in Christ. I'm going to rejoice in, in him, his victory is over sin, death, and the world. I'm going to rejoice in all of that because I am a sinner. And he called me as a sinner because that's who he calls. I answered the call and I'm just living the life that I can live right now. So I'm not going to pretend that I, I don't do anything. I don't see that sin boldly as an invitation to sin. I see it as an invitation to honesty. I see it as an invitation to leave, live free of guilt and shame and failure in my life. That's what I see it as. That's the invitation it invites me to, sin boldly. I am who I am. I do what I do. But I am not going to live in shame. I am not going to live in guilt. I'm going to live in forgiveness, and I'm going to live in grace, and I'm going to live in mercy. Because I learned what the scripture means that God defaults to and prefers and wants mercy in my life. And he wants me to live in that mercy and that people trump everything. And so he values me and offers me mercy and forgiveness and grace and love over everything. Because that's what he came for. He came for people like me. Just like me. And if you know me long enough, I'm not good over the long haul at being anything else. I mean, I might be able to fake it for a couple hours, but why bother? Why bother? Well, people aren't going to like it. Yeah, probably not. God loves it, though. God loves it. I'm unleashing his mercy. I'm unleashing his grace. I'm unleashing all of his love in my life. Who cares what people like? If I can unleash the mercy and the grace and the love of God in my life, why does it matter what somebody thinks? Because that's a lot of mercy, a lot of love, and a lot of grace. And if I'm not living in shame, if I'm not living in guilt, if I'm not living in failure or fearing failure in my life, but I'm living with a confidence and a boldness, I'm going to be a lot more effective for the kingdom. So we kick the dust off our shoes and we keep moving. That's what needs to happen. You want to receive my testimony? Awesome. Love you. You don't want to receive my testimony? I'm going to kick the dust off my shoes. Love you. And I'm out of here. That's it. <coughs> but I'm not going to sacrifice the love and the mercy that God has for me in order to please someone or a group of people. I'm not going to do it. I can't. All right, does anybody have any questions or comments? Remember where we started on this? Remember how we started? Learn, go and learn, 
what the meaning of the scripture is. And that's what we're doing. That's that's what this whole teaching is about. That's what the scripture is. That's the meaning. And I, I wanted to point it out in other places in the gospel. And I also wanted to point it out in, in the writings of Paul. Romans, if you remember where we went there. Where we went to Romans and we also went to Timothy. In the writings of Paul, where you see the same idea again. This is really a basic teaching. This is really a, like I said, a main and plain teaching. Period. If we don't get this right, we're going to get a lot of other things wrong. It's like if you mess up the foundation when you're building something, the rest of the place is a little crooked. Yeah, that's what happens with this. If you mess up the foundation, other stuff's going to be out of whack. And you can't really make up for it later. So you want to get the foundation right. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think we, I think people want to complicate it, right. and it's even the early church who were right there started to complicate it and had to be corrected in that, right. and to not complicate it and keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Well, what's the reality? This, the, the question I would ask is, what's the reality of it? Because just now, I'm just like, oh, we're all sinners. We're all, we all need Right. <laughs> right. Right. I think, I think what, and, and there is a, there is, there's a validity to the teaching that once we're born again, we're born of water and of the Spirit. And so once we're born again, then we become, and our nature becomes more like Christ. It becomes like Christ. And so we have a real choice. In other words, our nature changes 
in a sense, in, in, a, in a very real sense, our nature changes. And then we have a very real choice in our life. We can make the same choice that Jesus made. The issue isn't can we, the issue becomes will we or do we? And the answer, even for Paul and for you know the great saints of the scriptures, and even New Testament saints, is no, we don't. Because Paul describes the, the conflict, I want to do what's right, I want to do what I should do, but then there's a war going on in me where then I don't do it, and so there's that inner argument, and we don't always choose the, the right thing to do. We don't always choose the God thing to do. We don't always choose the, the God's purpose or will for our life thing to do. So we're still, we're still in that position. I, I do believe, though, that our nature changes. I really do. I don't think we're led around by our nature. I think we have a, a real choice that we can then make. And I think before we were not in a position where we could even really make choices like that. I think that we were under the control and under the power of the curse that was placed over Adam. But through being born again, the curse is broken, but we still have choices to make. But we're still sinners. Unless we somehow one day prove the scriptures wrong that says no one is righteous. You know, uh, I, I don't know that we'll ever be able to do that. But more importantly than whether we're able to or not, it doesn't matter. That's more important. That's, that's, that's really the answer that I, I need to give you for that question is it doesn't matter. Who cares? Yeah, it's not important. Right. It's like you're keeping score of a game he's not playing. <laughs> right. 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 Okay, let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, just loving us. We thank you for your mercy. And I pray that deep in us, in our heart, our mind, deep in our spirit, we will learn what the scripture means. That, that mercy, it's mercy, not sacrifice. It's mercy that you have chosen. And I pray that in our hearts, our minds, we would default to mercy when it comes to you, when it comes to each other, and when it comes to our understanding of the way you see each one of us. That we would default to mercy, that we would default to people as being more important, including ourselves, that we're more important than whatever our petty fear is or whatever that thing is 
that that we get, we have to see ourselves that, that you see us as more important, and that we can begin to even see other people people as more important. That that mercy in our life would be uh, stronger than justice. That mercy would be stronger than making sure everything is fair or worrying about that. And that in doing so, that we would take on just a portion, a little bit of your heart in the way that you see us, in the way that you deal with us. So Jesus, today I, I just want to say thanks for your love over us. Thank you, God, that that we are who we are. And we don't have to live in shame. We don't have to live in guilt. We don't have to live in fear. But we can just be honest. This is who we are. But you've made provision for who we are. In fact, you came to save sinners. You call sinners. You don't call the righteous. So I pray that we could rest in you. We could really relax into your call, your purposes, and your plan for our lives. A people of peace and really a people of joy. A people of joy, free from the guilt, free from the fear, free from the shame. Just flowing in what your spirit has for us. You've given it all. You've given it all that we might have life and that to the fullest. So tonight, thank you. I pray that we can enter into that life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alrighty. Well, thank you for coming tonight. Signing off from Belfast.